Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It's May the 5th, 2022. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Broadcast Network. Um, So welcome, welcome, welcome. May the 5th, so Cinco de Mayo. Also this year, the National Day of Prayer. National Day of Prayer Task Force President Kathy Branzell is a regular guest here on the program. She reminds us that our praise of... God's unchanging attributes and the remembrance of his blessings has helped us as a nation remain steadfast, um, even through the most challenging of times. She goes on to say, therefore, it is of utmost importance that we do not waver today in this practice of prayer and expressions of faith, love, and thanks as we unite in prayer across America on this National Day of Prayer. So I'm hoping that you have National Day of Prayer plans, um, at least pray. There you go. At least pray. We've been doing this, this National Day of Prayer, since 1952, um, observed and celebrated annually. It's it's by law. It's congressionally designated by a joint resolution. Happens every single year, inviting the citizens of America to turn to God in prayer and meditation. You can find lots of resources at nationaldayofprayer.org. You can join us tonight Wherever you're listening right now, uh, however you're listening right now, you can join us at 7 p.m. Central Time for the National Day of Prayer broadcast. And you can also uh, watch the broadcast live. We are going to link to the stream at MyFaithRadio.com and also on the Faith Radio um, social pages as well. So, you know, there's a secular response to the National Day of Prayer. That may not surprise anyone. It's called the National Day of Reason. And so if you have not considered the reasonableness of your faith, today's a good day to do that and to engage in conversations about the reasonableness of faith. There is is a reason, we believe, and there is a reasonableness to our beliefs. I'm thinking uh, that if you need... If you need help making those arguments, um, hey, Paul, who wrote, um, who's our friend that wrote, you know, the the book about the cross and then the book about the resurrection and, you know, uh, oh, gosh, he lives in oh, Texas. Oh, you're thinking Strobel. Lee Strobel. I'm thinking of Lee Strobel. Thank yeah. you so much. I think that all of Lee Strobel's books are really good on this topic and walk through in in good contemporary language, the reasonableness conversations. So there you go. Let's be praying today on this National Day of Prayer, and let's be praying for those um, who do not see prayer as effective because they do not believe in the reality of the God who is. Uh, First up this morning, Ben Johnson, as always, because it's Thursday. So we're going to talk with Ben across a range of headlines. I'm going to start by inviting him just to make his observations about this leaked opinion from the Supreme Court. Um, 
And we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation about abortion in America. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Ben Johnson is back. He's a media reporter for The Daily Wire. You can read what he's writing at dailywire.com. Ben, let's start right there. This morning, you are making some observations about the Supreme Court leaked opinion um, and some observations about what actually happens if Roe is overturned. Yes, you know, there's a a lot of commentary and a lot of it uh, not very well rooted in fact about what happens uh, if this draft decision ends up becoming uh, the official opinion of the court's majority. Uh, it, it appears as though this is a majority decision. Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, has said this is an authentic opinion. Uh, this document really does uh, reflect a draft opinion of a majority opinion that would be enacted by the court. People have talked about uh, allegedly this being a radical decision. Uh, frankly, to my mind, this is not as robust as if the five justices had simply taken Roe at face value because Justice Harry Blackman in Roe says that if the personhood of the child is established, then abortion cannot have any constitutional bearing because the child's right to life then is respected under at least the 14th Amendment, and uh, I would argue the Fifth Amendment as well. The 14th Amendment says that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. In other words, it is unconstitutional to kill an innocent person. So if they had simply written under the Constitution we do respect the personhood of the unborn child, uh, that would strike down abortion nationwide the same way that Roe versus Wade created the so-called right to abortion nationwide. So that didn't happen. Uh, instead, you got uh, what appears to be a very well-reasoned, well-argued decision by uh, Justice Samuel Alito saying that this will go back in a democratic fashion to the states as it was uh, and the status quo ante before Roe v. Wade settled uh, this or attempted to settle it in a pro-choice direction. So that's that's uh, what's happening. Now, what will happen the day after that opinion takes effect depends on where you live. Uh, there are several states which have already enacted laws uh, that say if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned, we will enact certain pro-life protections. Uh, there are a total of 12 states that have uh, what some, some people call trigger laws. Uh, for example, Kentucky in 2019 passed the Human Life Protection Act, Uh, which would make it uh, a felony to commit an abortion except to save a mother's life or prevent the permanent impairment of a life-sustaining organ. Now, those 12 states, I'll list them. You listen, because I know we have listeners around the country. Listen and see if your state is listed here. Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah are those states. Now, there are another eight states that uh, they, they had protections before Roe v. Wade went into effect, 
and um, they have never repealed those laws. And so if Roe v. Wade is taken off the out of the legal statute books, then these laws would go back into effect. So you have, according to uh, the Guttmacher Institute, basically 26 states where abortion would be heavily regulated, pro-life protections would be very strongly respected. And uh, that tells us that we are the majority. Uh, there was an economist at Middlebury College who said, and this, this I thought was a lowball estimate, but they said if Roe v. Wade were overturned, it would reduce abortions by at least 14% a year. I think that's a very conservative estimate, 14% a year in 26 states that essentially don't allow it. 14% uh, fewer abortions every year, talking about uh, perhaps as many as 100,000 lives every single year saved because this decision goes into effect. Thank you for that um, excellent summary, first of all. Um, thank you for not sounding hysterical because the breathless, um, I, I don't even, uh, response, um, reaction, near hysteria um, of those who are saying all kinds of ridiculous things about the potential of what will happen um, if, in fact, the opinion of the court represented in the leaked um, draft is ultimately uh, delivered as the opinion of the court in this matter. Um, I I have been, uh, I, I mean, maybe surprised is not the right word because I'm probably not surprised, but certainly disturbed uh, and my concern raised for those who, who basically imagine this is some sort of cultural sacrament. Um, and there is a near religious fervor to their sense that that abortion is so much a part of who we are that, you know, should it become illegal, America will somehow cease to be America anymore. We won't be able to cross state lines. We, uh, you know, I mean, I, the, the things I've heard in the last two days are are really stunning in terms of people's imaginations of the application of this. Um, and so can you just speak to that um, briefly, just the the range of responses we're hearing? It is not as if, well, maybe it is. Maybe abortion is not only the moral issue of our day, but it is like the cultural defining uh, characteristic of many people today. It absolutely has become a cultural touchstone for a whole segment of Americans, and, and I think it's dangerous. And you see just uh, this kind of idolatry, almost, of abortion pour forth in the kind of language that's used. Uh, hysteria is the oxygen of political rhetoric. Uh, it, it infuses every breath that everyone on both sides of the aisle take. I, I have a very hard time listening to it. But uh, you see it particularly on this issue. I've got an article at uh, Daily Wire that went up yesterday that has uh, the 10 worst responses I'd heard up to that point. Uh, some people say that uh, this will outlaw interracial marriage, uh, which obviously has nothing to do with this. Uh, some people say that it will establish fascism, essentially, in America, even though what this would do is return this to voters' choice. Uh, where a, a small minority of unelected people imposed it uh, in the first place. But uh, probably the, the, in terms of what you're talking about, the most disturbing language that I heard came from the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania who said that the right to abortion is sacred. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, Nancy Pelosi has used language like that before. She's called abortion sacred ground. Other Democrats have talked about how pro-life protections are, quote, an abomination, which is taking biblical language and flipping it on its head. It's inverting reality. And it makes you think that uh, perhaps they have substituted this worldview that uh, exalts abortion, that exalts uh, sexual uh, indulgence without consequence for, for those who indulge in it to such a degree that it has become uh, almost the template of what is holy and what directs their lives. And uh, they've believed that that is that's part and parcel of what it means to be an American, the, the liberty in their view, to take an unborn life. Uh, that is the exact opposite of what was intended by the founding fathers. It is certainly the exact opposite uh, for those of us who believe that our liberties do come to us, as Joe Biden says, because we are children of God. But we believe that that extends to all of God's children. And that means that the innocent must be protected at all costs. All right, Ben, um, let's uh, let's pivot from this conversation. We come back from a very brief break. I'm going to just straight up ask Ben Johnson, um, was Hitler Jewish? Yeah, because that's part of Russian propaganda today. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my Ben Johnson is with us. He is a media reporter for The Daily Wire. You can read what he's writing at dailywire.com. Um, ben, there is Russian propaganda uh out there that claims that um, Hitler was Jewish. And so we can't use the fact that the current president of Ukraine is Jewish as any indication that what's going on in Ukraine isn't what the Russians say it is, which is a, a, a rise in Nazism that they are seeking to put down. Was was Hitler Jewish? Did I miss something? Right. Uh, that, that's a, an excellent question, one that I think your, your listeners probably had not anticipated hearing today. Uh, and, and so I, you know, it's funny. Russia is known for its love of chess. And uh, sometimes you, you think a couple of steps ahead in chess. They said that they were out to denazify Ukraine. People said, well, the president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is Jewish. So they said, well, Hitler, Hitler was Jewish, too. Uh, Hitler was, was not, in fact, Jewish. Um, Hitler, Hitler was German. Uh, he, he he was not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan, uh, the, the type that he exalted above all others, but he was, in fact, uh, of that ethnic background. He was not Jewish. The idea, by the way, did not uh, just originate with Sergei Lavrov when he said this. Uh, this is something that has circulated in various circles uh, at different times. It was kind of a form of propaganda. In fact, there's some evidence that uh, actually a Nazi came up with this, uh, a Nazi named Hans Frank came up with the idea that Hitler was actually uh, fathered by a Jewish businessman who had a, a dalliance with his mother uh, in order to um, to save that that individual's life. He came up with this story that uh, you can't kill Jews because you are Jewish. It didn't work, obviously. Uh, so so no, Hitler Hitler is not Jewish. He is still the most fanatically anti-Semitic person ever to have lived. And uh, and uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is still not a Nazi. Well, and for anybody that's paying attention, um, the way that still not up. Yeah. And the way that you prove your Jewishness is through your mother anyway. So, I mean, (laughs) it's just anyway, 
Okay, we'll move on from there. Um, the pronoun war rages on. Um, we get getting some encouragement from Focus on the Family to not be bullied by the pronoun war. Um, help us walk around uh, in this conversation. Yes, uh, there was a very good article in um, in the Daily Citizen uh, published by Focus on the Family, and they were looking at uh, two articles on uh, sort of the two different poles of the pronoun wars uh, right now. One of them in the Huffington Post, or I guess now it's called HuffPost, um, uh, and uh, essentially it says, if you think my pronouns are optional, we can't keep being friends. That's the name of the article. So uh, if, if, if this individual spells out that uh, you you are free to hang out with this this person, and if you use the wrong pronouns uh, according to their accepted version of who they are, then uh, if you know they might give you one or two chances, but after that you are out. And uh, the article makes it incredibly clear these are not you know strangers; these aren't new people; uh, these aren't acquaintances. These are the the closest people in her life uh, that she's talking about cutting off because they don't uh, see her uh, in, in, the, in the same way. So uh, that's, that's one end of it. Essentially, she is bullying people that uh, you can't hang out with me if you won't respect my version of reality, even if it is the opposite of biological and scientific reality. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he highlights uh, an article by uh, Dr. Uh, Leora Sapper in City Journal called Don't Say They, which uh, essentially tells people, stand up, don't be bullied. Uh, if someone is telling you that uh, the only way that uh, you can spend time with them is to deny your version of reality, then uh, this, is, this is not someone that you want to spend time with in the first place. Uh, he writes, the Sapper writes, in practice, progressive elites are demanding public approval for the profoundly subversive and nihilistic ideology uh, that they have adopted, we should treat demands around preferred pronouns when they depart from the conventions of the English language, to say nothing of science and common sense, no differently than we would treat public professions of religious piety. If a faction of devout Christians began lobbying the government to require all Americans to introduce themselves with, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, the progressive left rightly would go ballistic. So, in other words, when you say they as a pronoun for a single human being, or you say he or she when the, the person's biology does not correspond to that and the English language would dictate otherwise, then you are embracing a form of unreality and saying, I accept your transgression of reality as though it were my own. Uh, so that's, that's something that no one who is Christian should be involved in. Uh, no one who is interested in living a life of reality can be involved in. It's impossible to follow the commandments of Christ if we're not first living in reality. And uh, I, I think that uh, Dr. Sapper, although he did not uh, intend to make the religious point, makes it very well. All right. For those of you asking uh, my reference to how someone establishes that they are Jewish is called matrilineal Descent. It uh, it considers a person self-evidently Jewish if their mother is Jewish, and you have irrevocable Jewish status if you have a Jewish mother. Now there are people who convert to Judaism, um, but by Jewish law, matrilineal descent is actually the way Jewishness is tested. So there you go. For those of you, that's right. Uh, under the Holocaust question. That's right. Under the Halakha, it is it is through the uh, mother. That goes back to the really brutal days of the Roman Empire, uh, when when Christians were being persecuted, Jews were persecuted uh, equally ferociously, 
And unfortunately, there was such a, an epidemic of rape at that time that it was impossible to establish paternity through the father. So it had to be through the mother as a result. Hmm. Well, I didn't know that part. Thanks, Ben. But, but I, didn't, I didn't know that part. Now, I don't know if I want to know that part. Ugh. Sometimes well, history is my... awful, right? Well, it it truly right. is, but, but it affects the way that we celebrate our religion in so many ways. Uh, certainly, we would not have a cross if it weren't for the practices Amen. of the brutal Roman Empire. And we can take those things and transform them. I think the Christianity and Judaism shows we can take barbarism and transform it into something that is holy and beautiful that celebrates our family and our Lord. Mm. All right. And back to the uh, the earlier conversation that we were having about um, abortion and people who um, are considering it sacred, you're going to have to check out what's going on um, in Boulder County in Colorado. It's posted in the Denver Post, so you should check it out. Um, This Catholic church has been vandalized across the beautiful uh, front doors of the Sacred Heart of Mary Catholic Church. Someone has spray-painted, my body, my choice. And I I just, you know, that is literally an image, a picture of the confusion, I mean, you know, the body matters. The body of Christ matters. His body matters as a substitute for ours um, in the sacrificial death upon the cross. And so if you guys are just looking for just one image that's going to help you understand what's happening in the culture and the confusion um, and the near religious fervor of abortion advocates, you should uh, just check out the image in the Denver Post of Uh, of the Sacred Heart of Mary Catholic Church this morning. Ben, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Um, You bless us. uh, You you bless us greatly, my brother. The blessing is all mine. Thank you so much. And I I always appreciate our conversations. Till the next time, God bless. Mm, Likewise. That's Ben Johnson on this National Day of Prayer. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. We'll be right back. Keep your texts coming. Thank you so much for the engagement on the text line this morning. Good morning to Anne and Carol and Jim and Lori and Patrice all texting in this morning. Uh, the, the text line is 877-933-2484. Um, sometimes folks are looking for the link to an article that we've discussed, sometimes uh, looking to ask a provocative follow-up question or chime in on a topic. I did. I invite all of it. So thank you um, for the engagement there this morning. Again, you can always text me at 877-933-2484. We have been very concerned about uh, the experience and challenges faced by our Christian brothers and sisters in Russia and in Belarus as those two nations have now engaged fully in a war against their neighbor, Ukraine. We've been following uh, the unfolding headlines out of Ukraine. Uh, We now have numbers in relationship to the dead. Um, You will remember the targeting of a theater where women and children were sheltering uh, along the sidewalks in uh, in Cyrillic had been painted the word children so that um, hopefully... There would be uh, an avoidance of shelling. Uh, Instead, it was targeted. 
And we now know that 600 women and children died um, during that attack. We are um, hearing today that the attempts of the Russians to kill everyone that is left um, in the steel plant, the Azov steel plant in Mariupol uh, is underway. So let's be renewing our prayers uh, for, for them. Matthew Heise has um, a depth of experience in the region that I think uh, is worth considering. He has a book that comes out next week called Gates of Hell, an untold story of faith and perseverance in the early Soviet Union. He's going to join us today. We're going to talk about um, what the experience of Christians was like in the Soviet Union, um, in the early Soviet Union, uh, and, and what it's like today. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Heisey joins us now to share the story of the resilience and perseverance of the saints in Russia. Matthew, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Good to be with you this morning. Well, it's wonderful to have you. So the book is Gates of Hell, an untold story of faith and perseverance in the early Soviet Union. Um, I want to start with the title. The uh, The double meaning is not lost on me, but let's unpack it for um, for those who may not be familiar with either the experience um, of uh, of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the early Soviet Union, and um, and maybe not be familiar with the text of Scripture to which you are referring. Well, of course, I'm talking about Jesus' words that that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, and as you kind of go through the book, and 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 I unpack that. Uh, early history of Christianity in the Soviet Union in the 20s and 30s, um, you would be, of course, it would be understandable if you thought that the gates of hell truly were prevailing. In fact, Mm. one of the bishops that I quote says, the gates of hell may prevail against the church, this church, our Evangelical Lutheran Church in Russia, but it will not prevail against the church at large. So individual churches may come and die. This is part of what's going to happen as Satan attacks the church. All right, so um, I think we all recognize that the you know the reality of individual expressions of the church um, exist for periods of time. The church is larger than any you know particular uh, expression of it. But when we're talking about the church in a particular time and place and location, we're talking about people. So can you take us into the experience of um, of the Christians that you're talking about? decimated by war, um, revolution, famine. Take us into uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Russia in 1921. Well, uh, that was a time, of course, that there was a civil war uh, taking place in the country because as the Bolsheviks uh, won the revolution in, in 1917, and I should note that my paternal grandparents had left Russia shortly before the Bolshevik Revolution, for which my family is eternally grateful uh, because those who stayed, those who remained, underwent uh, very heavy suffering. Initially, a lot of the attacks were against the state Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. Other Protestant churches had 
a little bit of leeway during the 20s. It seemed as if they thought they could survive, uh, but the 30s would be, I think, the bellwether, and that was when, of course, Stalin had full control. But in the individual lives of, of people back in 1921, for example, if you were a parishioner and maybe your children went to a Christian school, Christian schools were nationalized. Uh, the churches lost their property. They could technically still use it, but unfortunately, that property now belonged to the state. And the state, of course, said, you're allowed to use your own property, but we own it. We control it. And then, of course, heavy taxation began to be placed upon those churches. So the, the idea was we're going to destroy them through taxation, and then we are going to start persecuting their pastors. We are going to start restricting the activities of teaching within the church. And all that began in those early years of the Soviet Union. When, um, when you think about the radical um, shift in experience that people had, I mean, there, were, there was relative freedom prior to this in terms of um, the expression of Christianity, the gathering of people for worship, the educating of their children in the way that, um, that, that they saw fit. And then this, this sweeping uh, change in terms of statism. Um, when you look back and you read through that, like, how, how did people even process that? Like, I, it's, it's hard to imagine, right, as, um, as people living in a nation as free as the United States of America is, that that could happen. But these people are examples that it could happen. It does happen. It has happened. I think one of the interesting things, and actually, if you look at the cover of my book, I have the picture of an ordination of a Lutheran minister. Uh, <clears throat> his name is Ferdinand Herschel uh, Jr. Actually, it was his, uh, his, uh, his great-granddaughter who gave me the picture. And in that picture, it's in the Crimea. It looks very idyllic, wonderful summer day. Trees are full of fruit. Everybody's celebrating, although the Soviets have been in power for a year. Uh, in that picture, within 10 years, five of those pastors in the picture would be martyred. So mm. I think initially, a lot of them thought, you know, we can survive because, uh, interestingly enough, the Lutherans never had a seminary on the grounds of Russia proper. It used to be in an, uh, a, a city called Dorpat, which is in uh, modern-day Estonia. So uh, initially, people thought, okay, this is, this is a burden, this is a challenge, but let's keep doing it. Let's continue to hold... Bible classes for children. Let's continue to confirm. Uh, we can weather this. Uh, but as the years go by, and especially as we get into the late 1920s, uh, <clears throat> we will see uh, the formation of an entity called the League of the Militant Godless. And, and they really target the youth, which to me is one of the most interesting things that, that several of these Lutheran pastors, they recognized. They're going after our youth. And if we don't teach them, we will lose them. And we will lose the future. The League of the Militant Godless. Um, one phrase and group of people you'll become exposed to and familiar with in reading Matthew Heisey's brand new book, The Gates of Hell, an untold story of faith and perseverance in the early Soviet Union. Um, Matthew, um, you you use a turn of phrase that I think is um, is important for us to uh, unpack. The church outlasts the man-made sandcastles of communist utopianism. Um, communist utopianism, we might think today um, uh, as like 
progressive idealism. Like everything is going to get better if we would just all work together and share our resources. And at one level, as Christians, we understand that from Acts chapter 2. But when you try to apply that um, across a very large country um, and a lot of people, it, the, the resources end up in the hands of just a few, not, uh, you know, not equally in the hands of everyone. Talk about the church outlasting all the man-made sandcastles of, uh, of the way we might think about uh, utopianism. Well, as I mentioned, I, I think one of the important things is to, is to educate those youth. Uh, I, I have a wonderful quote by one of the Sunday school teachers who was uh, uh, one of those arrested in 1929, right around Christmas time uh, in Leningrad. There were about 30, uh, 30 plus who were, who were arrested just shortly before Christmas and two of their pastors. And as the uh, NKVD at that time, now the modern day KGB, which is now FSB, uh, as they interviewed him, uh, he told them very clearly, he said, we do not teach class consciousness. We teach every children to, to love your neighbor uh, because we cannot sit there and, and support an ideology that's going to pit one class against the other. So in their own way, they, they understood what the Marxists were trying to do. They were trying to create these divisions within society, you know, the wealthy, uh, the uh, the poor, and, 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 and try and set them against one another. And that really goes against, of course, uh, the Christian faith entirely. So the idea was, okay, we need to educate these folks, and we need to continue to teach, because in the 30s, I have uh, a, another quote from a bishop, uh, Theophile Meyer, where he tells, he, he grab, grabs his church council together, and he said, they're going to close us. I'm going to die pretty soon. The other pastor is going to be gone. They will take your Bibles from you. They will close your church. You need to educate the next generation, and you may have to do it underground. And that's mm. the only way you're going to be able to do it. And, and there's, a, I think, a, a, a true resilience, kind of the silent um, uh, perseverance by these believers. They, they don't moan. They don't complain. They seem to just say, this is who we are. This is what we should expect. And, and I think it's part of the pastors preparing them for the future, too, which helps. Mm. All right. How are we as Christians being uh, prepared for the future? Um, how are we being prepared to um, disciple emerging generations? What if we didn't have our pastors? What if we didn't have our church buildings? What if somebody came and took our Bibles? Like, what would discipleship look like? We're talking about the gates of hell we're talking about the perseverance of the saints, the untold story of faith and perseverance in the early Soviet Union. We're going to continue our conversation with the author, Matthew Heisey, in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right. Um, we are continuing our conversation with Matthew Heisey, author of Gates of Hell, an untold story of faith and perseverance in the early Soviet Union. Michael, uh, Matthew, excuse me, um, I wanted to share with you a, a text from a listener who says that's such a great phrase, man-made sandcastles, um, and then noting that, you know, on, on Christ the solid rock we stand and all other ground is sinking sand. So people are getting it. They are understanding um, the the testimony to the enduring power of, of God's Word and Christ's church and the Spirit's faithfulness um, that you are attesting to in this book. I'm wondering, um, with all of your experiences in uh, in Russia and 
surrounding countries. Um, what what are you hearing from them today? Well, I, sh- I should tell you uh, also full disclosure. My wife is a Ukrainian citizen, so we've been we've been watching it very closely. I mean, thankfully, her family is not in Ukraine, uh, but uh, certainly friends, her godparents, and others. Uh, she was a dentist in Kiev. And uh, they basically got out into the countryside. That was the way to get away from, from some of the uh, attack, a potential attack on Kiev. Uh, thankfully, the Russian forces didn't get there. Uh, but uh, the situation is, is, is kind of frightening. It seems that Kiev is coming close to being back to normal. Uh, Ukrainians are incredibly resilient people. And, and by the way, I should mention that in this book, uh, I do, when we talk about the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Russia, it w- included Ukraine. So as I, I watch the news and I, I, I shudder at what's happening in Mariupol, uh, I recognize that in 1928, a pastor, Johann Fohl, in the village of Rozivka, 40 kilometers north of Mariupol, was arrested after his service and led out of the church uh, by secret police agents. Uh, so a lot of this, this tragedy has, has just has been part and parcel of, of what uh, Ukrainian people have suffered as well. And, and I'm also, since I was a missionary in Russia for 14 years, I'm, I'm truly proud of, of a lot of the uh, students that I taught in a Lutheran seminary in a little village called Koltyshe, about uh, 10 kilometers outside of St. Petersburg, because they are, they are standing up against the war and uh, against what the state is doing. Um, and in fact, a, a Lutheran archbishop whom I know has actually fled the country because of his outspoken uh, statements against the war and what was taking place. So mm. it's, uh, you know, we're, we're getting constant updates as to what's going on. We are, since I am the director of Lutheran Heritage Foundation, we, we translate uh, good Christian books into about 140 languages around the world, including Ukrainian. And uh, my wife's godfather, who does our translations, is, is back at work. He said the, the printing press, the printing organization was not bombed. It was literally two miles from Bucha, which we uh, unfortunately mm. all know, just as phrases like Auschwitz and Buchenwald uh, today, I'm, I'm afraid. But uh, at least the printing presses uh, were not destroyed, and they, they are going back there and printing a people's Bible commentary in First and Second Samuel and, and going about the work of the church and, and, and preaching and teaching the faith. That's, um, that's amazing, and that's an extraordinary testimony. Thank you so much for, um, for sharing um, all of that very deeply personal insight and information. You guys can find Lutheran Heritage Foundation, um, to which Matthew just referred, at LHF Missions, Lutheran Heritage Foundation, lhfmissions.org. Um, Matthew, um, when when you think about the the resilience of our Christian brothers and sisters in in the part of the world that we're talking about, Russia, Ukraine, um, surrounding regions. Is there, um, I mean, this might just sound like a horribly uninformed question, but is there like a distinction that you can like see and describe to us versus, you know, like Western Christians? Like, is there a, is there a grittiness? Is there, and maybe it's just the nature of the, of the part of the world um, where they're living, but can you describe a Christian in Russia or a Christian in Ukraine, um, you know, an evangelical Christian um, to us? Like, I, I mean, what are they experiencing? And uh, I mean, in terms of 
their discipleship, their experience of the faith, the kind of worship they're engaged in? Like, take us into their experience. It, uh, no question is dumb. I, I, I used to teach, so I, I always tell people that. No, actually, that's, that's a very good question. And I think it's uh, part of what, what I share in this book is, is how uh, people in this part of the world have undergone uh, tribulation for their faith for so long. You'll see the Antichrist mentioned many times in this book uh, because they, they recognize it. They thought they were living in Revelation. And who could blame them uh, for Stalin's attacks on the church? It, it really looked like the book of Revelation and the persecution that would come at the very end times. And we, you know, of course, are in these end times. And, and so uh, we can understand that. I, I think of uh, a deacon by the name of Stepan in Kremenitz who, who showed me, he's probably in his late 70s now, he, he showed me how the, the KGB took his fingers and stuck them under the door and just kept slamming the door uh, because he was holding, uh, you know, secret Bible studies in the Soviet Union. And, uh, and his fingers were all distorted because of that. But he, I mean, he was very eager to show me. He, he got out the door and he said, this is what they did to my fingers. Uh, and this is what they did. And, and, and then he showed me in his apartment, his little, I mean, his little home, where he had set up a makeshift altar where they could worship. They've, they've, they've dealt with this. I have a former student who told me that, you know, I was a kid in the late years of the Soviet Union, and we would have Bible studies when it was illegal, and the kids would have to watch the roads coming into the village. If you saw a stranger, you'd come and tell the parents, hey, somebody's here who is not one of us, and the Bible study would turn into a birthday party. So I mean, they, they've just learned to think this way, to understand that the state is going to be opposed to what they do. And perhaps maybe we shouldn't always understand. We should maybe think that way, too, uh, unfortunately, because uh, they can teach us a lot. Oh, indeed. That is exactly what I was thinking, um, that there is much for us to learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ who um, you know, have exp- who have lived in, uh, in the underground church, who have lived as underground Christians, and yet are joyful and um, teaching the faith to the next generation and singing songs of faith and moving forward, moving forward, um, recognizing that no matter what, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Um, Matthew, thank you so much. Uh, folks are asking, hey, how do I spell Matthew's last name? I want to find him. Uh, Heise is spelled H-E-I-S-E, H-E-I-S-E, but you can just find him um, at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website, lhfmissions.org. Uh, the book is, let me get the full title, Gates of Hell, An Untold Story of Faith and Perseverance in the Early Soviet Union. Um, it releases next week, um, but obviously you can pre-order it. Uh, M- Matthew, thank you so much. What a delight. What a delight to make your acquaintance. Thank you for We're going to be praying. Yeah, we'll be praying for you, your ministry, your wife, her family. Um, we would love to hear stories as those, uh, you know, as those stories emerge. Um, so keep in touch, please. I, I would be happy to share them. And, and many thanks to Lexham Press for, for printing this book for me. Yeah, exactly. Amen. All right. That's Matthew Heise. You can connect with him uh, at lhfmissions.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back.
All right. Again, thank you for your really good um, questions and interaction on the text line today. You can always text me 877-933-2484, answering your questions as fast as I can. Um, I want to uh, say this about education in America. There are lots of Christian schools across the country that are blossoming in what um, some people are calling a once-in-a-hundred-year moment. Uh, for Christians in terms of American education. The Association of Christian Schools International, which is one of the country's largest networks, has seen double-digit growth since the beginning of the pandemic. The Association of Classical Christian Schools has added more than 10,000 students nationwide. The number of homeschoolers in America has doubled in the past three years. New Christian schools uh, and new Christian charter schools are popping up all over the country. Um, There is a resurgence of homeschool co-ops and hybrid homeschools, learning pods. Churches are are welcoming these. Churches are becoming places where many of these pods and homeschool co-ops are nesting. And so if you're looking for a way for uh, your church to be used throughout the school, uh, throughout the, you know, the workday week, uh, Consider hosting, offering um, for a homeschool pod or co-op to nest in uh, in the context of your church building. That is a great way for you to serve God and serve your community, get to know your neighbors, um, and fill your church up during the week. All right, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Up next, this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.